Well, good evening, everyone. Good, good, good. Still awake. Uh, as Ryan has said, and thank you, Ryan, we are starting this new series in a book uh, in the New Testament, Second Timothy, written by an older, mature Christian to a younger Christian. The last book that was recorded that Paul wrote. And um, this was a book where lots of advice was given to a younger Christian. And for the, fact, the next five weeks, we're going to be studying this book. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to interview some of the, and I have to be very careful here and politically correct, some of the more mature members uh, of our congregation. Uh, and John is the victim, or, or I should say a volunteer co- contributor to these interviews. An opportunity for us, for us all, to draw on the life experience of some of our members and to hear some of the advice that they might give uh, to others. So, John, thank you for agreeing. And the first question is very simple. It is just to, to tell us, and it's a bit of an insult in a way that our time is so short, uh, to, to ask you to compact your life into one, one question. Tell us about your life. Tell us about your home life, family life, church life, just work life. Just give us a, an idea for those who don't know you uh, about uh, your life experience. Absolutely. Yes, my parents were brought up in the church. Uh, the members here, and I was brought up in the church. Uh, went to the toddlers class, and uh, actually, that's where I met my wife, Rosemary. Uh, <laughs> so it was very special. <laughs> Um, I was uh, saved when I was about 11. We used to have a children's uh, night on a Friday night, and it was called Happy Hour. don't think you'd call that today, Happy Hour, but anyway, it was a happy hour. And uh, one night, um, God was really was speaking to me, had been for a little while, and I went home and knelt at my bed and asked the Lord Jesus to forgive me my sins, and I put my trust in him. So that was the best decision that I've ever made. And I'm so thankful for, for him saving. I was then baptized when I was uh, about 16. Uh, for family, we had uh, four children. And we now have eight grandchildren. And I have one in the church here, uh, Andy. <laughs> uh, and I have seven other, other grandchildren. Um, after school, I wasn't academic at all. Uh, I managed to scrape through my uh, leaving exam just about, and I was always interested in the business. Um, my grandfather had started a business down in St. George's Markets. I used to go down there on holidays and uh, uh, worked there and enjoyed it. So that was my goal. Uh, so um, my parents thought it would be a good idea for me to get experience elsewhere, and I went to South Wales for two years and came back and, and joined the business. Uh, it was my grandfather, I said, who started the business in 1897, and we obtained the SPAR, SPAR franchise in, uh, in the 60s. Uh, and then I, my two sons uh, joined the business, and they took it on to another level. And it's good to have my grandsons and Martin's son just joined us this week. So it's a family business? Family business. Absolutely. And obviously you're involved in lots of other uh, charities, organizations. 
Christian organizations. Give us a sense of some of the things that you've been involved in. Yes, well, I was involved with the young people in the church, first of all. Uh, I was a Sunday school teacher, and then uh, when every, every boys, the rally started, uh, Ronnie Barron and I led the juniors for a while, and uh, we had a great time and uh, had camps and so on. Uh, so, sorry, what was your other question? Other, other, other um, missions and organizations. Other missions, all right. Of... Okay, well, I really didn't get involved in anything else until probably my 40s. So it was probably 20 years in youth work. And then by that time, I thought it was good to pass on the baton uh, to others, to younger ones. And uh, I got involved with Gideon Ministry. And I'm still involved with Gideons and also with SANS uh, Soldier Centres, all because of your grandfather, <laughs> Mr. Jim Buckley, who was my Bible class leader, and he was a wonderful leader. I have so much um, regard for him, and he blessed so many of us in that Bible class. Uh, so he got me involved with Gideon's and also SANS. Super. So there are probably a few people here who remember you when you were younger. Oh dear. Um, so there's no lying here. Uh, no lying. Uh, so it's all got to be truth. But I was kind of thinking that Timothy, we've no idea what Timothy was, uh, what age he was when uh, Paul wrote these letters to him. But let's say he was 20. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping to that conclusion. Um, let's say he was 20. Give us a sense of what you were like uh, when you were 20. We were rakers. <laughs> <laughs> but we had good fun. And, um, but there was a good crowd of Christian young people at the time, particularly your uncle, Jim Johnson. Mm-hmm. I owe him much. So whenever I came back from South Wales, he sort of got me involved in things. Uh, and uh, yes, it was, uh, it was a good time. Um, uh, and uh, I think it was so important to get involved in activities, youth, the church activities. I remember when I was uh, applied for uh, membership, there was an elder called Mr. Bell, and I'll always remember the illustration he gave me. He said, you know, it's like uh, a coal fire. In the center, the coals are red hot, and on the outside of the fire, they are co- cooler. And he said, just remember, get involved in the church. Otherwise, you will maybe uh, get cool. And I thought that was a very good mm. uh, advice. So then, so, so let's, let's develop that a bit further in a sense that the, the, the crux of these interviews is to ask some of our older, more mature members what advice they would give to their younger selves. Not so much uh, preaching to us as young people, but what advice would they give to, the young, to their younger self? So so in that sense, going back to your, you know, your 20s, what yeah. advice would you give yourself? Well, as I say, I would say get involved. You know, don't hang back. Get involved. There's lots of work to do in this church. Lots of work amongst the young people. And so I think that's, that's very important. Um, what else would I say? Uh, well, I think it's important uh, to have a quiet time in your life. A quiet time when you... Uh, sorry, a daily quiet time when you read a portion of Scripture and just commit the day and ask God to speak to you through the Scriptures. I know that at that age, everyone's very busy, but, you know, it's, it is good to set aside half an hour 
Uh, for me, it works best in the morning. I'm a morning person, not an evening person, but it just you find the time that suits you best. Super. And, and has that, was that something when, when, when you were in your 20s um, and before the family came along and before the busyness of life came along, was that something that was easy for you or, or did it come difficult? Was that a discipline that you found hard or not? I don't think it is easy for anyone. Uh, it, it is a, is a discipline, but you have to... I suppose I was encouraged by people like your, your, your grandfather and others uh, to, to do that, and, and I just I knew that it was important. Uh, I boarded at, at Campbell at that time, and uh, it, it, it was very important for, for me to get involved with other Christians in the school. There weren't that many, but we used to meet together regularly, and we had a prayer time. Always remember that the first time I ever prayed publicly was the leader of this little group, and... Uh, he just said, John's going to open in prayer. And <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> but that was a good start. Great. Well, I, I could keep on going for, for hours, I think, to, to find out more, John, about you and about your contribution to this church and to, to society generally. And, but I'm going to save you those blushes. But it is an opportunity for us all uh, as members to find out a little bit more uh, about those folks that we sit alongside week after week, to find out a bit more uh, about what, the, what contribution they've made, what advice they would give to you as well. And I know that I can speak personally for, for the, the good advice and support and encouragement that you have been to me and to many others. So thank you for that little insight. And um, hopefully that will set the scene for this idea of passing the baton, advice from older people to younger people. And as I say, over the next four or five weeks, we will interview a few more people. Thank you, John. Our speaker tonight is Danny Crooks, who's well known to us here at Crescent. Danny's a regular Bible teacher here who serves on our ministry committee. Danny's a recently retired professor of computing science at Queen's University. Danny's beginning our series on passing the baton, as we've heard. This follows the Apostle Paul's um, letter to Timothy, written near the end of Paul's life. Paul wanted to ensure that the young church was equipped to deal with dangerous trends and worldviews that he saw emerging, but that he knew that he wasn't going to live to see through. And Paul calls on Timothy to ensure that sound Bible teaching is preserved for succeeding generations. So, Danny, over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. And that was an excellent summary of Second Timothy. I could nearly just close in prayer. <laughs> Let's turn to Second Timothy, uh, and we'll read the first chapter tonight. So, if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's page nine nine five. This is Paul's second letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So what I'd like to do tonight is, first of all, to give a little bit of historical background to this letter and what Paul's motivation for the letter was. And then to look at chapter 1 and what Paul was seeking to achieve with Timothy and in Timothy uh, through what he says. As Ryan mentioned, this was possibly the last letter that Paul wrote. Depends on Hebrews whether Paul wrote that or not. But certainly the letters that we know Paul wrote, this would have been the last one. Perhaps shortly before his death. At the end of Acts, as David reminded us this morning... Uh, Paul is under house arrest, but he was able to live quite comfortably. He was able to receive visitors, and he was really very busy in defending the gospel. It seems that he was released from that. Now, we don't know because Acts ends at that stage, but it seems that he was released. He continued to serve the Lord. We do not know where. I suppose the only thing we do know is that it wasn't at Ephesus because he had said to the elders at Ephesus on his third journey, I know that you will never see my face again. But he seems to have been arrested again. Perhaps he was betrayed uh, and arrested, perhaps at Troas where he had to leave his cloak and he was dragged away. And perhaps those were the tears of Timothy that Paul remembers meant so much to him. And he was now, as he wrote this letter, in a dungeon in Rome. Very different from his first imprisonment there. Meanwhile, the churches that Paul had planted had grown. They were still in a climate of persecution, but they were growing. And he he adds this comment which seems rather strange. He says in verse 15, all the churches in Asia have deserted me. Now, when you think of the churches that were in Asia, that included Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted, that he had spent years nurturing and developing, where he had sent Timothy to work in that church too. Uh, He knew that the church was going to be under attack, but it seems that that church 
uh, had, and others in the area had turned away from Paul and weren't loyal to Paul anymore. Now, how could that have happened? Well, we have experience in living memory and even today of churches that are growing, but are growing in a climate of persecution. For example, in China, the church has been growing rapidly, but in a climate of persecution. In Russia, the, the church has also been growing and expanding, but there is persecution there. Now, what happens when a church grows in a climate of persecution? Well, you get two types of churches. What you might call a state-approved church, like a registered churches, those churches that uh, agree to the government's form of meeting and behavior. And then you get what is sometimes called an underground church. So in the days of this, in fact, even more recently in, this, in Russia, um, the Putin has come to an agreement with the, Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church. And they are, although they're limited in what they can do, they have compromised as far as the teaching of Scripture is concerned, but they are relatively free from persecution. But those who insist on living by the Bible and preaching the Bible, well, they suffer persecution. And the same is beginning to happen even in China too, where there are certain state-approved churches, but if you're not in a state-approved church, you're much more liable to suffer persecution. And in Second Timothy, we are seeing the beginning of pressures which would ultimately divide the church into a, a state-friendly church, a state-approved church, at least a state-tolerated one, uh, although still in a climate of persecution. And then, on the other hand, a free, biblically-based church, which was subject to much more intense persecution. And in this letter, we'll also see how the underground church, if I could call it like that, was going to survive. Now, at this time, there were already signs that Ephesus and the churches in Asia were a bit embarrassed about Paul. He was in jail. He certainly wasn't state approved. And so if you wanted to be approved by the state, well, you certainly didn't associate yourself with people who had been imprisoned by the state, the Roman state, for preaching the gospel. Paul was regarded as something of a troublemaker and uh, he was isolated and Christians, many Christians were ashamed to be associated with Paul. That was one reason why he was so lonely there in Rome. So what we have here is Paul, at the start, in prison, facing imminent death, sidelined as far as official Christianity is concerned, but even worse, because it had been revealed to Paul that the church was soon to face several major attacks one of these key ones was what we would recognize nowadays as postmodernism. And Paul, later, as we'll see in this series, he, he outlines what was going to be the cause of this and what would be the effect of it and how um, its effect uh, of, of postmodernism at that particular time, it was going to control how the church stood in society and what it stood for. 
Also, there were other uh, challenges, particularly to do with wrong views of prophecy and how that drove the church's involvement in world affairs. And we'll see these uh, worldviews described by Paul later in the letter. Paul desperately wanted to be around to defend the church against these attacks. He knew they were coming, but he also knew he wouldn't be around. And so he was preparing the next generations, not just the next generation, but the next generations to continue the fight of the faith. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel and all its fullness. It had been deposited to him, as it were. And now his duty was to hand over that deposit and to ensure that it was guarded carefully. Paul talks in this letter about running a race. He talks about athletes, and he says of his own life, he says, I have run the race. He had completed his part of it. I suppose it would be more accurate to say that he thinks of his life as part of a relay race. If you've ever watched uh, the Olympics, you'll know that uh, some of the highlights are the relay races. I prefer the 4 by one by 400 rather than the 4 by 100 because I can never see what's going on. It's all over far too quickly. But in a relay race, the most dangerous point is when one runner has to hand over the baton to the next one. Paul had run the first leg of the race, as it were. He's thinking of the God's plan for the gospel as being like a long relay race that so far has been going on for 2,000 years. Paul had run the first leg, and now he was about to hand over the baton. He was going to hand it first to Timothy, and he had to train Timothy how to hand it over to those who were going to come after Timothy. And as I say, the handover is the most dangerous moment in any relay races. There's two dangers. First of all, that the person who's running with the baton doesn't let go of the baton. The other danger is that the person who's taking over doesn't pick it up and, it dro- and drops it. And sometimes, as we were hearing from John, a church faces this challenge. How does one generation hand the baton of the gospel over to the next generation? And there are two dangers. One is that the older, more experienced generation refuses to let go and thinks that the next generation isn't up to it, isn't as mature as they were, and so they refuse to let go. The other danger is that the up-and-coming generation doesn't really want to take the baton from the previous generation. They want to do their own thing. They want to do something different. And so there's a danger that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, falls between the cracks, as it were. And many churches have lost their way long-term because they make a mess of the handover and they fail to realize its purpose. And so the key purpose of this letter is to teach churches for all time how to pass on the baton. And so it's not only Paul passing the baton to Timothy. It was more than that. As we'll see next week, it was training and preparing Timothy to pass on the baton to those coming after him. Timothy, at this stage, was no longer a young man. The first letter, when he received that, he was a young man. But now he's just a man. It's surprising how quickly 
you can change from being a young man or a young woman to being just a man or a woman. I mean, nowadays, if you say to someone that they're middle-aged and they're less than 60, they get a bit offended. But 120? Middle-aged, if you're 60 then, and that's middle-aged, you expect to live to 120. I don't, I'm not prepared to say tonight just what being a young means. But you just have to blink and you change from being a young person into being the core and heart of the church who should be carrying the responsibility. So we don't need, we shouldn't wait until someone's approaching retirement before we seek to pass the baton on to them. We need to think about people, as John was saying, in their 20s. They should be the ones receiving the baton. Those of us who are retired, thank you, Ryan, for reminding me of that. Those of us who are retired, we need to think two generations ahead, not just to the next generation. By that time, it's too late. And as Paul had perhaps only a few months to live, the ideal person to manage the handover to the subsequent generations was Timothy. But there was a problem with Timothy. And this is the problem that Paul has to deal with in chapter 1. Now, let's just think for a minute about Timothy, what we know about him. Timothy came from a mixed marriage in the sense that his mother was a Jewess, a devout Jewess, but she had married a Gentile who was apparently an unbeliever. I don't know whether she had drifted from her faith in her early days or whether she was just desperate to get married or whether there weren't enough Jewish men around. But she married a a Greek man, a Gentile. But she did teach the scriptures to Timothy when he was young. Her mother uh, was also a Jewess and a great believer and a faithful believer. Paul knew them both. And they both seemed to have come believers. And then Timothy became a believer. So Timothy was at least a third generation Christian. Paul seems to look at Timothy's family as a relay race. He thinks of his grandmother, Timothy's grandmother, passing the baton on to her daughter and and Timothy's mother, uh, then passing the baton also on to Timothy. And there are families like that. John's family, if you don't mind me saying so, is it's like that. It's like a relay race of the baton being passed from one generation to the next. Now, after Paul was deserted, even by the church at Ephesus where Timothy had been based, And after his second arrest, Timothy had a choice to make. If the church at Ephesus and the other churches in that region of Asia had become or were becoming more state-tolerated, Timothy had to decide, was he going to side with those that were heading in that direction, who were prepared to compromise a bit on Scripture for a comfortable, more persecution-free life, Or was Timothy going to serve those who would become, in due time, the underground church, the persecuted church? And Paul was concerned, really concerned, that Timothy would be intimidated into taking the easy option, into compromising, not turning his back on his face, but choosing the soft option, becoming part of the establishment Uh, not teaching all of the scriptures, but just keeping a low profile and not having anything to do with Paul because he, of course, was not approved. 
This choice that Timothy had to make is really very relevant. It's particularly relevant, for instance, to anybody in China, to someone who becomes a Christian in China. Some of you will know better than I do uh, the more recent situation there. Uh, I know one young guy who was here, who went back to China uh, as a believer, but hasn't been going to what we would call family churches. He has gone once or twice to an international church, once or twice to a three-self church, but he's afraid of his promotion prospects, afraid that he might not be promoted in his work, and so he is not prepared to commit himself to a Bible-based church. We may not in Northern Ireland be in that position, at least in the current generation. But sometimes in our own lives, Christians do have to face something of the same pressure. I mean, if you say, what is a state-approved type of Christianity today, or state-approved type of religion? Well, we would have to conform to a certain ideology. Uh, this, our, our, our government's view and the police's view of acceptable religion uh, generally requires compromises on certain fundamental principles. Firstly, on the uniqueness of Christianity. Secondly, on the concept of absolute truth. You're allowed to have your own truth and to say you can call your, what you believe as your truth, but woe betide you if you say that what everybody else believes is wrong. We have to be we're challenged on the reliability of Scripture and more recently, of course, on gender issues. And if someone takes a stand on gender issues, then they are much more liable to persecution. And the battle is often being fought by young Christians, even at school. Somebody in our church was just telling me a couple of weeks ago that one of their relatives at school, um, the teacher asked who all believes that uh, transgenderism, I think, was wrong, and he was the one person who put up his hand. Afterwards, some of his classmates beat him up. So even in our society today, our young people at school age are facing the choice that Timothy had to, fit, had to make, facing it uh, in a much more direct way than those of us who are older uh, don't, and that's even in Northern Ireland. So this, this letter to Timothy is going to teach how we as a church should prepare the up-and-coming generations to live without compromising the deposit that has been handed to us, to guard the truth of the gospel in the face of increasing pressures. And Paul's message to Timothy is to try to get him to go back into the battle. It seems to me that he had dropped out he, had, he was keeping a low profile. <clears throat> Since Paul had been arrested, it seems that he hadn't come to visit Paul. But this is not just kindly advice. This is the word of God to Timothy through Paul. And it's the word of God to us. And Paul, in chapter 1, as I just go through it briefly, there are three outcomes that Paul is seeking to to achieve in Timothy's life. First of all, that he would fan into flame the gift of God which Timothy had received through Paul. Secondly, he appeals to Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord Jesus. And thirdly, he says, do not be ashamed of Paul. So first of all then, 
what does Paul mean when he says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which Timothy had received through Paul? That gift was either the work, the ministry that Timothy had been commissioned to do, or it was the spiritual gift to equip him to discharge that ministry. Now that phrase, fan into flame, it's close to what John mentioned uh, about the coals on the outside on the fringe of a fire. But whenever Paul uses imagery like that, his mind, his vocabulary is steeped in the Old Testament, particularly the temple and the offerings, the temple offerings and the sacrifices. Paul viewed, always viewed his life as like an offering to God, as a sacrifice offered to God. He, he thought of any believer's life as an offering. At the end of this letter, he says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He says to the Philippians for the, the gift that they had given him, he said, was like a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So Paul saw Christian service as like a burnt offering that is offered to God according to how it's described in Leviticus. Let me just read you a couple of extracts from the regulations for the burnt offering from Leviticus chapter 6. It may seem strange, but I think you'll get the point. These are the regulations for the burnt offering, says Leviticus 6. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. A few verses later, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. I think you get the point. The fire must not go out. Five times in Leviticus the regulation says that for an offering like that to be offered completely to God, the fire must not go out. And in Timothy's life, the fire was going out. It had died down. There were no flames, there were just embers that needed to be fanned into flame to create flames. Timothy, Paul says, if you want to offer yourself to God, you must get the fire going again. If you want to fulfill your early commitment, your earlier commitment to God, you've got, get, you've got to get back to exercising your gift get back to discharging your ministry. Maybe some here who can look back to a time when they were on fire for the Lord, but perhaps the pressures of work and family cause you to not so much hand over, but just to opt out. And now, in terms of your service for God, all you have are memories and glowing embers. Let Paul's word and God's word challenge you to fan into flame the gift of God. As John said, find a work for the Lord to do. And if we were to say, well, what does Paul ask Timothy to do to stir up and to fan into flame the gift that uh, had been given to him? Paul identifies where Timothy would start and how he could start to fan the flame into flame his gift. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Jesus, which seems to imply that Timothy had become ashamed. How do you encourage people to testify or witness about the Lord? Some people do feel ashamed in a group of unbelievers, people who would mock Christianity. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it, to, 
to talk about the Lord Jesus and to say you're a Christian. Well, one way I've heard preachers to do is to flail the Christians, make us feel guilty. Say, all those people are going to hell. It's up to you to tell them if they end up in hell, it's your fault. Well, Scripture never uses that argument ever. That's not how uh, Scripture motivates people to not be ashamed. Timothy had a natural fear, I think, of other people, a fear of rejection, a fear of opposition. And so he says that God's spirit, which he has given to us, is a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You may have, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you may have a natural fear of speaking to someone about the Lord. But God is with you. He is in you. And he does not say to you, well, you've just got to tough it out. The Spirit gives us the resources to do what we could not do naturally. So perhaps if you're a believer and you really struggle with this issue, you might like to pray this when you go home. Lord, this week, give me just one opportunity when I can say a word about the Lord. Perhaps even just tell one person that I'm a Christian or even that I was at church, just to see if there's any response. Okay, Don't go out and preach in the open air. Don't get yourself booked up for a series of meetings. Just say, ask the Lord for an opportunity for just one, just to say a little thing about the Lord and then see how the Lord develops that. That can be the first breath that fans into flame the gift that God has given you. Paul's tactic um, for motivating Timothy not to be ashamed to testify about the Lord Goes, is, is very different. What he talks about first is the wonder and the amazing nature of the message that it is that we have to bring to this world. Paul, remember, was facing his death. He was saying that he would not be able to be engaged in the big battles up ahead. You would nearly think that as he started this letter, he would be in a depression. But how does he start it? He starts off talking about the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. A man that others would say should be fearing death. He's full of the message of the life of the gospel, eternal life. He says in this chapter, in verse 10, he talks about our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In chapter 4, Paul speaks not about his death but his departure. Christ has abolished the concept of death in Paul's life. It's simply departure, going to the real world. This world fears death. We have people uh, in our world, many of them fear death. Others try to get rid of that fear by convincing themselves that there's nothing after death. It's just complete blackness. That's us and we're gone. And people often have to choose either between fear or by being insignificant and their life having very little meaning. What a hopeless world we live in because particularly of death. If you had an answer to people's fear of death, if you had something that could give people a purpose because death does not have to be the end, would you be ashamed to mention it? And so one reason why Uh, Paul is trying to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed to testify 
is because this message is so wonderful. It's what this world needs, a dying world needs, the message of eternal life. Maybe you think the gospel is to tell people they're going to hell. What sort of news is that? We feel that our duty is to condemn people first and then we give them the good news. All that does is to drive people away and shut their ears. What we need to do is to come to this world with a message of life, eternal life, a message of hope, and a message that gives people purpose. You can just imagine Paul having described this. He says, Timothy, are you ashamed to share a message like that? Then he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, in verse 8. If Timothy was going to be the sort of person who was going to pass the baton to the right Christians, he was going to have to stand up and not be ashamed of Paul. He couldn't keep a foot in both camps. Paul uses two tactics to get Timothy not to be ashamed. First of all, Paul points out his own position in the context of God's grand plan for history. He talks about this message and the grace that was given and planned by God before time began. This is how big a plan this is. Before the universe was created, God was had this all planned. But he said, in Paul's lifetime, the message appeared. Christ appeared. And Christ appeared to abolish death and bring life and immortality. And when this message needed to be announced to this world, Paul says, I was appointed to that job. I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. When I get to heaven, Paul says, there is going to be a queue of people wanting to shake my hand, wanting my autograph, because of the great privileged position that I was in. Uh, He said, uh, when God had to choose someone to to run that first lap, to take the gospel, to guard it, to preach it all around so many countries, he said, I was appointed as a herald, as an apostle, and a preacher of that message. Now, Timothy, are you ashamed to be associated with someone like that. Think about when we are in heaven. There will be people who were ashamed to associate with Paul. They won't be in that queue. They'll be lurking in a corner somewhere, trying to think of some reason why someone might be grateful for them. But Paul encourages Timothy, think about who you want to be honoured by. Do you want to be popular for a few years, have a comfortable life for a few years, and be a nobody in heaven? Or do you want to be part of that group that are recognised and honoured by heaven itself, whose deeds are recorded like war records, uh, the famous battles that people fought in? Timothy was going to have to choose that, and so Paul describes his own privileged position in the context of God's eternal plan as a way to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed of Paul. And his second tactic is very clever. He starts praising Onesiphorus. 
He says, on a completely different subject, think about Onesiphorus. He was not ashamed of my chains. He came to Rome. He struggled to find me, but he made all sorts of inquiries, and he found me in prison. Oh, and how grateful I was. God bless him. God honor him. And as Timothy listened to that and heard how Onesiphorus was being written in Scripture for all eternity. A great encouragement for Timothy, wasn't it, to say, well, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to visit Paul, even if it means I end up in prison too. And so Paul is challenging Timothy to choose which side he's going to be on. Yes, to choose endurance, enduring hardship, persecution, even imprisonment but for the eternal consequences, eternal honor of that, or else to be a nobody. Yes, to be saved, not to lose your faith, but not to have any reward or renown in heaven. We know from the book of Hebrews, the very end of the book of Hebrews, which I would take to be written after this, Timothy had been in prison because we read that Timothy had just been released from prison. When I read that, I said, praise the Lord. Timothy responded to this message. And even though he, he ended up in prison, he was prepared to endure hardship. We know that the church at Ephesus, where Timothy, worked with, uh, Timothy had worked with, came through its dark patch because the Lord praised it for coming, holding to the truth eventually. And so this letter to Timothy from Paul is a message, I think, to all of us who might be tempted to go for the easy option in standing for the gospel, to become part of established, majority, socially acceptable form, version of so-called Christianity, or to stick to the Bible, to stick to the gospel, the full gospel with its full extent, and to preach that unashamedly, even to our friends, even if it means that we might risk promotion, we might risk popularity, but we will be remembered in eternity, for all eternity, if we do that. I pray that all of us here who are believers will be part of that honored and honorable chain of that race that is still being run. Let's just close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Christian gospel is no small thing. It is no minority view of one amongst many ideologies and religions. It is the grand message which was prepared before creation and was delivered by the Lord Jesus. And for 2,000 years, it has been preached throughout this world, even at the cost of people's lives. And we thank you for those in the chain who have passed the truth on to us. Father, we pray this time particularly for the younger Christians here, the up-and-coming generations, that they would not be ashamed to honor the Lord in their lives and to take their stand. We pray that they would get to learn the whole of the Scripture, to understand it, to get into it and not be satisfied with a superficial outward form of Christianity. 
Thank you for those who do take their stand fearlessly and unashamedly in a world which is much tougher than those of us who are old or had to experience. So we pray that your word would strengthen us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.